Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day in the capital is Bill Williams. Bill is the CEO of the Centre for Engineering and Manufacturing Excellence, a non-profit education and skills organisation based in Raynham, London. Uh, Bill, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure, Scott. I must tell you, the sun is actually just shining very lightly in East London, so uh, not too autumnal. Not too autumnal, just yet, absolutely. It's uh, started out a little bit cloudier than it was uh, now um, this morning, I have to uh, report. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's nice to yeah. see that the weather's starting to uh, to pick up and it certainly is a, uh, a nice day for it. Um, normally on the podcast, what we tend to do is dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves at CEME, how has it affected you and your operations? Uh, well, we have a number of different operations that have been affected differently. I suppose the worst hit, we have a, a conference centre business, um, which it's all of our businesses, have, none of them have closed throughout the um, pandemic. The conference centre is still open, but only hosting meetings of up to 30 people. So that that's the business that's been hit hardest. Um, the uh, the Centre for Engineering and Manufacturing Excellence has about 100 businesses on its campus. They're all fast-growing technology companies. And um, I have to say, perhaps if I'm honest, uh, from the outset of sort of March, I'm delighted and also a little bit surprised as to how many businesses, how few businesses have actually ceased uh, trading or ceased to be based at at CME itself. So um, we're faring pretty well, uh, to to be completely frank. Lots of things have changed as to how we're doing that business, Mm. but things are, the outlook is, is good in the circumstances. It's very encouraging to hear that business is really pulling through during this time. We've seen some incredible innovations within business and which really have made that possible. But what do you think is going to be sort of the long-term effect of the pandemic on um, engineering and manufacturing as a whole? What can we expect in the long term, do you think? Well, uh, I I think there is, um, I think there's a, Maybe this is rose-tinted spectacles, but I think there is a, a, a greater level of awareness within the public of the role of manufacturing in society and the importance of engineering. Um, you know, there's been a lot of press coverage of the you know, Formula One companies through to we're next door to the Ford engine plant, which is making diesel engines. And to most people, that think that's a dirty environment. And then they hear that within six weeks, they've transformed the factory floor, and they're manufacturing ventilators, um, which is incredible, really. So I, I think the 
sort of standing of, of manufacturing as distinct to engineering within society, I hope, in, in, in Britain is, um, has gone up a few notches. Uh, I think the role of engineering and manufacturing in, in society in the UK economy hasn't changed in that it makes a significant contribution and it's going to continue to make a significant contribution. And to be perfectly honest, I think there's bigger questions for me about the long-run impact of Brexit over and above COVID, actually, mm. because I do recognise we're in the thick of COVID, but it will pass. And um, I think we'll look back in you know, 10 years' time or maybe less, maybe a bit longer. And, and it, you know, it will be a big economic blip, mm. but it will be a blip of less than 24 months. Yes, uh, you're exactly right there, because in the background, while there's been this COVID tunnel vision, if we call it that, the Brexit train negotiations yep. have been continuing. And this month, we should hopefully find out whether or not there will be a free trade deal in place with the European Union by the end of the year. But in the absence of a Absolutely. trade deal, what that's going to do is essentially leave a bit of a double whammy for businesses in the sector as well, because there'll be all of the disruption of, um, of course, tariff, um, no tariff free trade with Europe, as well as the economic fallout of the COVID-19 situation to handle as well. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it'll, it'll be interesting mm, times. Very, very much uh, so for uh, the industry um, itself. And it's something that we're certainly keeping a very close eye on ourselves here at the uh, the Leaders' Council as well. And um, to just shift focus ever so slightly, um, when we think about sort of leadership a little bit more broadly, Bill, I always like to sort of ask the question to guests that come onto the programme. What does the word leader actually mean to you? When you think of a leader's role, what is that role? Well... Oh, what a question! Um, it, it's it's super multifaceted, isn't it? But I, I think mm. the ultimately, it's the person who ultimately takes responsibility, and whether that's responsibility for the company's results, or whether it's responsibility for the health and safety of individuals within it, or stakeholder relationships, or managing the board. You know, ultimately, that's the role of leader, isn't it? And people do it in different ways and different styles. But mm. I think anybody that's an effective leader fundamentally has to take and accept responsibility for being the individual that carries carries those responsibilities. Mm. And, and that doesn't mean it's necessarily done well or done badly. Uh, different people do it in different ways. But to me... Fundamentally, it's, you know, have you accepted that it is your responsibility to to deliver on all of those fronts simultaneously? It's that sense, isn't it, that when you're in a leadership position, the buck very much stops with you. And it's been very apparent, that responsibility, particularly during the uh, the last few months, because what leaders have found themselves having to do is to step up and really go back to basics in a lot of cases to make sure their businesses can adapt to keep trading in a certain way during the uh, the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, but also they've had to really provide reassurance, inspiration and motivation for their employees as well, because they're will inevitably have been a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry about um, the impact of the pandemic, not just in terms of their own personal health, but also in terms of their employment prospects as well. Um, How is it when you're in a leadership role managing that? Because when you are at the top of the tree, as it were, 
there isn't anybody above you to refer to and consult. So when you need a little bit of inspiration for yourself and to find a little bit of direction, where is it that you can go and look to for that when you are the leader? Well, I and I, would, <clears throat> I go to, personally, I go to Churchill um, and I, 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 I'm standing in my office and looking at a poster on the wall which says, never, never, never give up. Um, and another one of his um, quotes, which I think is very apt at the moment, is, you know, when you're going through hell, mm. keep going. Uh, and back back to the earlier part of your question, there's a, there's a great, this isn't, I'm not trying to list as many quotes as I can get in here, but um, there's another super quote, which again is really pertinent at the moment from Horatio Nelson, um, which is a leader is a dealer in hope. And I think that really has been, you know, you, you have to, particularly with COVID, I think in the early stages of COVID, um, most leaders, myself included, um, I can certainly remember a few dark days when I thought this was, you know, it's overwhelming. It was ridiculous. It seemed to be that I couldn't see a way through in the, in the thickness right at the beginning of this. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, people need to, people feed off people who, not blind confidence that just doesn't stack up, but honesty, determination. Mm. Um, you have to, you have to um, instill a sense of direction and instill mm. a sense of confidence in people that you might not be entirely certain what the outcome's going to be, but you know where you're going to try and go and why. And, and, a, and a level of, uh, you know, passion and enthusiasm for mm. where you're going to try and take the company or, or the business. And, and mixed, mixed, particularly with COVID, mixed with honesty and humility because we've made some great things happen at CME, which um, I wouldn't have done. But other members of the board have got on with it and done it, and that's fantastic. Um, I, I think this, you know, enthusiasm is massively overlooked as, mm. as a really important part of leadership. And people, as I say, people will feed off that. And right now, that's what people need uh, close to home. Uh, you know, they need it from politicians on the television in the evening, but they need it from leaders in the businesses because uh, that's close to home. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a simple thing, but it's not often done very well. Mm, I think there's an incredibly important point to take away from that. I think when you're looking to be a leader in any profession, you do have to be passionate about uh, what you do for sure. And it's quite sad that over the uh, the last few years in engineering and manufacturing in particular, there are industries where we've seen a real skills shortfall. But incidentally, um, one of the results of this whole pandemic situation is that there are now going to be a lot of people who are maybe unemployed and disheartened by the impact that COVID-19 has had on their employment prospects and their futures, particularly in the younger generation. And there are going to be so many opportunities out there in the engineering and manufacturing professions, aren't there? Well, I think there are. And, and, you know, I've I've worked in engineering and manufacturing all my life. Um, I'm very passionate about, you know, British products, British ingenuity, British designs and 
you know, it brings huge wealth to society as well as the economy. And, mm. I, you know, I give you, if you think about the, the, the uh, PPE, which, you know, masks and gowns and, and what have you, <clears throat> when COVID struck, of course, there were shortages, um, which the government resolved and, and uh, had to import 70 to 80% of that. 90% of our stockpiles of PPE now are made in the UK. Mm. So, um, I, I referred earlier in the in the conversation to UK making ventilators. Um, at, at incredible rates of production to think that we weren't making them, uh, other than in small batches prior to COVID. So, my my hope and aspiration, and I do tie this into Brexit because I think there will be a greater sense of both national. Um, pride and national, not security in a defense sense, but security in economic sense, the mm. importance of a thriving engineering and manufacturing sector. So my hope and dream, uh, Scott, is that there will be, uh, not a renaissance, but there will be a, a renewal of, of excitement in younger people about careers in engineering and manufacturing and a renewed confidence in the sector itself to go and invest. And there's, you know, we often talk about productivity in UK engineering manufacturing. I think now's the time to really push for the confidence to invest as we come out of COVID, which we will. Um, and one way or another, we will be, um, I think, turning to being more efficient at exporting. Um, and I think in that regard, there's a really, really bright future. And, and we help businesses recruit people into into their engineering manufacturing sector. And it's quite interesting that you see young people, they're just not interested in working in that sector. And it's not because mm -hmm. they know what the jobs are like. It's because they have a perception that, that it's not a great industry to work in. And once you get them in, they're away. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm really hopeful that there will be a, a, a renewed growth and ambition from within the sector and, and a, a desire for more people to want to work in it. That would be mm. brilliant. And I there's pockets of that happening already. Absolutely. And you're so, so right that after Brexit, certainly by British is going to be so, so, so important. And we do have a fantastic yeah. engineering and manufacturing sector, which performs to very, very high standards as well. So it is only right that it does gain the traction that it deserves. Absolutely. And I think that over the course of the year, uh, the next 12 months, uh, just before we do uh, wrap things um, up on the uh, the programme bill, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, um, we should talk about yeah. the future of the sector, because um, at least until... March, judging on the uh, the Prime Minister's announcement just two weeks ago, we are going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal, living and working under it until we do see the back of COVID-19. Um, but between now and then, and indeed beyond then, what do you see as being the future for engineering and manufacturing in the UK? And indeed, where do you see CME being perhaps this time in a year? Well, our... our um, expectations are that we will grow actually because we I, I think that businesses are looking for more flexible arrangements on space and we have both engineering workshop space as well as design and research space and, and, and offices that's not to plug see me that's just to say that I think there's that unique blend 
Um, so we're looking to open another campus um, with partners uh, in, in the higher education sector as well. But, um, so I think we'll see growth. Uh, I also envisage that you know the government are from an, on the education and skills front, uh, probably through the apprenticeship program, although there'll be new programs, we'll be looking for help to get young people um, into work or train them up uh, whilst uh, whilst the economy is, is getting back on its feet again. So I think there'll be we're banking on opportunities arising there where we can help the government with that and at the same time we can help technology businesses in the UK grow faster which is what we do today. I think there's some incredible aims and ambitions uh, there Bill for sure and um, the government's certainly going to need all the help that it can get to really champion the uh, the industry over the next uh, year or so and beyond because it is so so important and I think that just given how enlightening it's been having you join us to share your views on today's programme it would be wonderful from my point of view to welcome you back onto the show at some point in the next 12 months just to see how some of those ambitions are coming to fruition. We'd be delighted to come back and share with you uh, where we've got to on those things, Scott. I'd really welcome that opportunity, Bill. It has been such a pleasure listening to you and very intellectually stimulating, not just for myself, but also for the listeners as well, tuning into this. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again in the next year, do please continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on, because I think it's fair to say we're certainly not out of the woods with this one just yet. No, 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 we're not. But um, engineers and scientists will get us there along with uh, personal um, taking the right decisions and, and going with the government guidelines, of course. Exactly right. And I'm sure we'll soon find out as well exactly what the landscape of Brexit is going to look like. And that's going to be the next big challenge for industry as well to really get its teeth into. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a very interesting time indeed. Thank you ever so much for your time on the programme, Bill. My pleasure. I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners that were tuning into the programme today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. And it was also an absolute pleasure to welcome Bill Williams, CEO of the Centre for Engineering and Manufacturing Excellence, onto today's podcast. Um, Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career, um, uh, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of Parliament's Upper House since August 2015, when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. That is coming up shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Have uh, not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course whether they can receive the the grant, ten thousand or twenty-five thousand. All, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become 
the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.